Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's late November 1899, and the British, under the command of Lord Methuen, are trying to relieve Kimberley, the diamond mining town, which lies on one of the railway lines north of Cape Town. The Boers dealt Methuen's force a serious blow at the Battle of Moda River in late November, causing close to a thousand British casualties, although the Boers themselves then retreated to Jakobstal, a small town further north, employing their brand of guerrilla warfare. Kimberley was a few days' march away, and Methuen had been in a rush to relieve the siege of the diamond-producing capital of the world. So rushed, in fact, that at the Battle of Mudda River, he'd failed to reconnoitre the area properly, and his men paid for this oversight with their lives. And they would continue to pay, because in our coming battle, which was far more deadly, Methuen would once again fail to understand the geography and the role of his men inside the African landscape, and once again he would attack a Boer position with no clear idea about where his enemy were. Things for the Boers weren't going swimmingly either. After Moda River, their enigmatic leader, Kurs de la Rey, had left to grieve his son Adrian, who died after receiving a shrapnel wound to the stomach. So the commander initially retreated to Jakobstal, where a second commander, which had travelled all the way from Mafeking 200 kilometres in the north, linked up with him. The following day, General Cournier moved his forces 16 kilometers further north to the hills of Scholtnik and Spadefontein, where they began to dig entrenchments on a feature which formed the last defensible position before Kimberley. It was now right at the end of November, as we've said, just about summer, where temperatures in this area of semi-desert climbed to 35 degrees centigrade during the day. Nights, though, can be surprisingly cool, particularly if it rains. The Free State Commander under General Cronier was strengthened by the arrival of around a thousand men from Helbron, Kronstadt and Bethlehem, who'd ridden to help defend their comrades from where they'd been based in Natal, and as well as others from Fixburg and Ladybrand, close to the Lesotho border. With additional reinforcements from Blumhof and Volmaranstadt, the Boers now numbered over 8,500, excluding their supporting women and children and a huge number of black workers. It's not clear just how many black workers there were, but these labourers then began the actual work of digging the Boer entrenchments. It's an anomaly, this war. While the white men went about killing each other, the black men dug the trenches and then their graves. At least most of the time. And sometimes the white men's families would watch them die from behind the combat zone. Just another warped mirage that is the history of South Africa. The absent Boer hero, Kurs de la Rey, finally showed up on December 1st, having laid his son to rest and recovered a little mentally. When he surveyed the Boer trenches at Spadefontein, he was dissatisfied. And we know what happens when de la Rey was dissatisfied. He confronted people, and in this case, his commanding officer, General Cronier. We should understand the delicacies of this situation. Cronier was a free stater in charge of the army in the region. Delaray was a Transvaaler who thought he was in charge. The men instinctively knew who was the smarter commander, and a confrontation inevitably ensued. Delaray realized that Spadefontein could be hit by the British long-range artillery from the hills of Marchesfontein to the south, and wanted the entire Boer position moved toward those hills. Cronier refused. 
Delaray did what anyone would do in the modern era of communications and immediately telegraphed the president of the Free State, Martina Stein, who in turn telegraphed President Paul Kruger of the Transvaal. Stein then rushed to Spadefontein by horse-drawn buggy to see for himself and arrived on the 4th of December, prompted though by Kruger. The incredible thing is you should think of the telegraph in these days, or those days, as a form of SMS. Lots can go wrong in between your 140 characters. Both Stein and Kruger had become concerned by the rift developing between the supposed allies and also how the Free Staters had performed particularly badly compared to the Transvaal Boers during the recent Battle of Moda River. So the Free State President toured the defences, then called a Kreisrat, or Council of War. He knew that the British artillery was better trained, and the enemy had more field guns. They were highly accurate and could virtually hit any point. Unlike Natal as well, the area around Kimberley was sandy, with very few rocks to use in order to build defences against explosive cannon rounds. Delaray wanted the Boers to repeat their trench building at Moda River, in front of the Marcusfontein Ridge, which overlooked a receding open ground sloping towards the British. Then they'd fire their Mauser rifles using a flat trajectory, and they'd stop the British from successfully utilising the night attack to creep up on the hills. Another important fact about placing the trenches there was that the Boers, particularly the Free Stages, wouldn't then be able to run away when attacked. Stain fired General Prinsloo, who was generally regarded as a complete failure and behind the Free Staters' poor showing thus far, and that in itself raised the morale of the rest of the Free State burghers. So as Methuen waited back at Mota River, the Boers set to work building a defensive line across a crescent-shaped front, extending for 10 kilometres and straddling both sides of the railway line and road in front of Marcusfontein Ridge that Methuen would surely use to advance. The main trench in front of Marcusfontein was over three kilometres long and protected on the right by a second earthwork. The black workers were forced to toil in the blazing sun and through the night building the second defensive trench on the left. As reporters wrote later, Delaray ordered his trenches built with the skill of a man who knew how to trap elephants, with grass and acacia branches placed before the lines so that anyone approaching from in front would not see anything amiss until literally upon the line of defence. In six days the job was done and gave credence to the Boers who knew their land intimately, deeply. They knew how to camouflage it completely. And luckily for the Boers, there were two existing high barbed wire fences running northeast into the Free State border. The second ran directly along in front of the main large trench, along with a series of thick scrubby bushes, which were serious obstacles to any attacking army. Our attention now shifts to Methuen, who delayed his full frontal march by 10 days to allow reinforcements from the Cape to catch up. He was also wounded in the thigh and needed time to heal and then to plan his assault. Furthermore, the railway bridge, which the Boers had dynamited, needed to be constructed once more. The British knew their foe were now somewhere around Marcusfontein Ridge. Methuen had sent patrols out towards the long hill, but Boer sharpshooters picked off riders and they'd been forced to scurry back. Yet Methuen was determined to carry out an attack without basic reconnaissance. It's like planning in the dark. When his mounted scouts tried to bypass Marcusfontein, they hit the fences and the scrub. Then Boer snipers picked them off. 
Methuen had no proper map. Their only examples were from land registration papers and were almost useless to an army considering a military option. So officers would creep as close as possible and draw sketches based on what they saw, and this weakness would be critical in the coming clash. By the 8th of December, the engineers had managed to concoct a fix to the railway bridge over the Moda River, described as a ragged affair of timber and wire besides the twisted steel girders. The emergency was driven almost exclusively by Cecil John Rhodes, for the British commander in Kimberley by the name of Kekovich had already told Methuen that he had enough food and supplies for at least another two months. Rhodes, meanwhile, was badgering Methuen to act immediately. So all was set for this battle. Methuen was trained in the tactics of the day. Ever since the British victory against the Egyptian army at the Battle of Tal-e-Kabir, the usual process against entrenched enemy was an approach night march, maintaining a close order, literally touching the man in front of you, then a deployment into a wider and open order when you approach the trench and adorn a charge with the bayonet. Romantic, perhaps, against the Egyptians with their single-shot muskets and 18th-century cannon, suicidal against the Boers with their bolt-action mauses and pom-pom machine guns. The die was cast. In the meantime, the British shelled the Boer positions constantly, which meant they kept to their trenches. Christian de Wett, one of the Boer facht generals or fighting generals, wrote an informative book after the war from his notes. So we quote, The enemy was shelling our positions unceasingly. Not a day passed, but two of the Lidite guns dropped shells amongst us. Sometimes not more than four or five reached us in the 24 hours. At other times, from 50 to 200 and once as many as 436. De Wett then complained to Cronier that the presence of the Boer women and children behind their lines was becoming a distraction and they should be sent away. But Cronier ignored his complaints. So we moved to the 10th of December, when Methuen began bombarding the Boer positions with more urgency, starting at 4.30 in the afternoon, ending after dusk at 6.30. Then the Highland Brigade, under Major General Warshop, drew up, preparing for a night march, which would place them in front of Macharisburg Ridge at dawn on the 11th. Warshop wanted to flank the Boers along the Muru River, instead of taking them on in a headfirst attack. But Methuen said no. The three columns involved would be the Highland Brigade, the 9th Lancers and the 2nd King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry, joined by artillery and even a balloon section. Amazingly, Methuen had sent no balloon to check on where his enemy lay. Considering what we now know about the use of aerial reconnaissance with the modern use of drones, that was a very bad mistake, made worse because his officers were pressing him to do so before he ordered the attack. But he was in a rush and worried the Boer sharpshooters could pick off the balloonists. It began to rain after lunch on the 10th of December, but the British attack began as scheduled with the bombardment. As we saw later in the First World War, the artillery barrage, which was supposed to soften up the Boers, merely warned them of an impending attack as the 24 field guns, four howitzers and a 4.7-inch naval gun opened up. This was the biggest bombardment by artillery anywhere in the world since Sebastopol during the Crimean War 50 years before.
Red earth could be seen spraying upwards almost 150 feet, along with rocks, and the artillery pounded the top of Marchesfontein Ridge. But there were no Boers there. We know they were congregated in trenches at the base of the hill instead, and watched the display as though viewing fireworks lying on their backs in their trenches in wonder. There are those leaders who inspire songs. We've already heard of a few in the short months of this war. Now we meet another. General Warshop of the Highland Brigade had ordered no fires and no smoking to alert the every present Boers to their position of the first Highland column. He sat in his bivouac near his men eating a beef sandwich, then lay down in his sleeping bag. As Thomas Packingham describes, he was in a bad mood, having lost the compass and knife given him by his wife before he left Scotland. Methuen had ordered his Highlanders to leave their sporrans and claymores behind as they snagged the scrubble, but Warshop ignored his commanding officer and donned his claymore, and a claymore is a massive two-handed sword. Perhaps he regretted his actions, we'll never know. At midnight, Warshop was awoken by his staff and prepared to move out. A gale-force wind was blowing from the southwest, and the drizzle had turned into a solid downpour. Africa had dished up another thunderstorm to welcome the British army. The first column of Highlanders moved directly to the southwestern spur of the Kopje of Marcusfontein, followed by the Black Watch, which moved east or to the right of the Kopje, and the Seaforth Highlanders below them, while the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders moved to the left. So 3,500 men in 30 companies were all compressed into a column only 40 metres wide and 150 metres long. And waiting for them in the main trench were the Boers of around the same number, all pointing their high-powered rifles straight down these British rows. This battle will produce the same effect that British troops would feel in the 1914-1918 war, as we'll see. The second column on the left, under Major General Reginald Paul Carew, consisted of a battalion from the 9th Brigade, the Naval Brigade with their famous 4.7-inch naval gun, and Remington's Guides, that was the cavalry unit made up of local English speakers. The third column, led by Major General Sir Henry Edward Colville, was in reserve, and was comprised of the 12th Lancers, the Guards Brigade, artillery engineers and medical support elements. And thus the Highlanders formed up in one of the most compact marching orders in the drill book, close order. As we've seen, that means thousands of men packed into a tiny area. It was pitch black and the men could only feel their position using lengths of rope knotted at every 10 feet. The officers had their compasses out and noticed anomalies which we now know were caused by the high iron content of the surrounding rocks. So their compasses played up, but still they managed to make it to the point Methuen had described just in front of Marcusfontein Ridge. Methuen remained ignorant about exactly where the Boers were. He guessed on the top of the ridge, but as we know, he guessed wrong. Had he used his balloon as advised, this battle may have had a very different ending. Well, you know, I suppose hindsight is twenty-twenty. But we have to ask how a commander of an army could place so many of his men in such an invidious position. Some have suggested he eschewed newfangled warfare in favour of the chivalry of old. His troops were to bear the brunt of this stupidity. 
What the British general had done is blithely marched his men into probably the worst possible place he could have chosen in the whole battlefield, directly in front of the most powerful group of gunmen lying ready to shoot anyone anywhere in the world at that precise moment. This was to be made worse by Washop, who was an aggressive Scotsman bedecked with his beloved Claymore. Warshop and his company commander Benson marched steadily towards the glowering Marcus Fatane Hill looming before them. Benson apparently turned to Warshop as the dawn lit the sky and said, This is as far as it's safe to go, in mass, he meant in such a tight bunch. And unbelievably, Warshop answered, I'm afraid my men will lose direction. I think we will go a little further. And just to add weight to his comment, he remained at the head of his men, right at the front, walking point, as they now call it. It was now only 400 metres to the Boer Trench, but the British had no idea it was there at all, which is extremely close in terms of modern weapons. The Highlanders then tripped a warning wire which the Boers had laid. A single shot rang out, followed by 3,000 Boers who opened fire from what was virtually point-blank range into 3,500 Scotsmen. A member of the Argyle's column described this moment as though someone had switched on a million electric lights. A Times newspaper correspondent wrote, Beneath this hell of fire, discipline vanished. The men broke and fled, leaving on the field dead, dying or wounded. One man in every five of the 3,000 men. In the British column, panic ensued. Non-commissioned officers yelled left, no, 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 right, and instead of falling flat, which is the proper response to sudden extreme fire, they stayed on their feet for moments, then they fell dead and dying. Others then threw themselves behind cover, anthills, scrub, rocks, anything. The sun rose on this field of carnage where the Scots Highland Brigade was lying dead still and in the rear, finally, in the morning light, Methuen decided to raise his balloon to see what was really going on. The men aboard the balloon had a telephone cable and told Methuen what they could see and it was a mistake that Cronier had made, leaving nearly a kilometre of space between the main trench in front of Marcusfontein and the eastern edge near the Moda River. But they also saw the mayhem the first volley had caused, and some say that up to 700 men were killed or wounded within the first five minutes. General Methuen, like other generals in South Africa, fell into a state of shock. His specialised and highly aggressive Highlander Brigade had failed. He'd expected them to overcome the Boers. He sat on a cart in the shade of the balloon, mute. There were attempts at movement, but the Highlanders on the plane were trapped. They lay there for nine hours without water, unmoving even, as their ants gnawed at their skin, for any twitch could have meant a Morza bullet. The men at the head of the brigade disentangled themselves from the dead and most of them fled. Some of the regiment, known as the Black Watch, at the head of the column charged the Boer trenches. A handful somehow broke through, but as they climbed Marcosfontein Hill, they were then shelled once more by their own artillery. And then General Cronier, who was on the copy since early in the morning, stumbled on the group and his men either shot or killed or captured the rest. An attempt was made to outflank the trenches on the right, but Boer rifle fire pinned the British down. The remaining Highlanders, under the command of Lieutenant General James Hughes Hallett of the Seaforths, had been lying prone under a harsh summer sun for most of the day, with the Boers still attempting to encircle them from the south. 
Suddenly, in the late afternoon, those who'd remained alive stood up and fled west towards the main body of British troops. The general chaos was worsened by officers and NCOs who appeared to issue contradicting orders. Men ran, they ignored their own leaders. The pipes scurled, officers cursed, men screamed, and from headquarter hill, Methuen watched, open-mouthed. This action exposed many of the British field guns, their cannons, but the Boers failed to capitalize on the mistake, and the gap created by the panicky withdrawal of the Highland Brigade was filled by the Gordons and the Scots Guards. On the Boer side, a terrible incident occurred. Scandinavian volunteer corps, which had turned out to fight for the Boers, was wiped out in a most heroic manner. They were a small unit of around 60, made up of Norwegians, Swedes and Finns, as well as others from around the Baltic. At a point on the night of the 10th of December, an order was issued by General Cornier for the Scandinavians to fall back. They were isolated in entrenched positions around a kilometre from the main Boer trench. But the message never got through and they fought almost to the last man. This held up any further British attack. 52 Scandinavians were killed. Only seven survived. Cronier understood the significance of this stand, and said in a letter he wrote to Kruger that, Next to God, we can thank the Scandinavians for our victory. In the late afternoon, a Boer messenger bearing a white flag arrived at a Scots Guard outpost to say that the British could send ambulances to collect their wounded lying in front of the trenches at the foot of the hills. The Royal Army Medical Corps and Boer medical orderlies treated the wounded until the truce was broken by fire from the British naval gun, not having been informed of the temporary armistice. A British medical orderly then galloped over to the Boers with apologies, and the truce was reinstated. After the wounded had been collected, the truce was over, and the Boer guns, which had not seen action that day, suddenly opened fire on the cavalry at about 5.30 in the afternoon, and the centre of the British attack then fell back. The British were forced to withdraw back to the Modo River to regroup and to await further reinforcements. Unlike previous occasions where the Boers withdrew in a tactical manoeuvre after winning a victory, this time General Cronier held the Marcusfontein defence line, knowing that Methuen would again be forced to continue his advance along his logistical railway lifeline. When the ambulance men went out the next day taking advantage of another truce, Warshop's body was found a mere 200 metres from the Boer trench with his beloved Claymore alongside, along with 902 dead and wounded Scotsmen, 216 Boer casualties were also reported. The tethered spotter's balloon continued to float, joined now by dozens of vultures circling above the bloody earth. Later, Methuen wrote, There must be a scapegoat, so I must bear my fate like a man holding my tongue. At Marcusfontein, the Highlanders lost 60% of their officers, and coming so soon after the battles of Modo River, people in England were fully aware of the struggle in which they were now engaged. We entered the part of the war that became known as Black Week in England. It was becoming personal. People began to hear about neighbours' sons who died, and the casualty roll in the papers featured thousands of names. The news that 13,000 of Her Majesty's best troops had been sent packing in the open field by a bunch of ragged Africans in the form of the Boers was deeply mentally scarring. Even Chief Imperialist Scribe Ryder Haggard was stunned into poetic silence. But not everyone who penned poetry was silent. The animosity that the troops on the ground felt towards their leadership is captured in this contemporary poem by a soldier of the Black Watch, and it goes... 
Such was the day for our regiment. Dread the revenge we will take. Dearly we paid for the blunder, a drawing-room general's mistake. Why weren't we told of the trenches? Why weren't we told of the wire? Why were we marched up in column? May Tommy Atkins inquire. That was written by Private Smith, December 1899. Yet there was still hope, for General Redverse Buller was about to attack a railway junction on the main line to Ladysmith, which was besieged far to the northeast in the Natal province of South Africa. So next week we'll investigate part two of Black Week, where General Buller in Natal was leading his troops across the Tugela River to the small town of Colenso, which would see the much-vaunted general receive one of his worst defeats, and which would be his undoing. So join me then. Don't forget to rate this podcast on iTunes, please. And you can message me on Twitter with any questions at Des Latham.